are with the JRNyquist.com podcast, and uh, we're we're back with our friend Jan Lemprecht in South Africa. Uh, how are you doing, Jan? Hi there, Jeff. I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, I thought we might discuss grand strategy since it's a new year and it's January, and this is going to be a momentous year, I think. Um, I think so, yeah. We started out with a bang in the Middle East with uh, Israel going whole hog against Hamas. Yes. And we had the Russians cutting off the um, the gas from Ukraine and Europe. I guess they're getting pretty cold up there. And uh, we have uh, uh, the latest book that's come out by Middle East expert Robert Baer, the devil we know about uh, Iran, and he summarizes uh, America's invasion of Iraq very simply. He says, George Bush has basically given Iraq to Iran, because after the Americans pull out, the Iranian surrogates are going to control Iran, Iraq, and uh, all the rest of the Persian Gulf is going to be under their thumb. So Iran is basically going to control most of the world's oil supply. Yes. That... That is something that's, uh, that a friend of mine in Israel was talking about quite a few years ago. He was saying that um, all the insurgency that we see in Iraq actually comes from Iran. Mm-hmm. And that Iranians, and that the Iranians are behind most of the terrorism there. I think they're even behind, is it Hezbollah? Yes, in Lebanon. In fact, I understand that they basically have uh, have a significant control in Lebanon, too. So when all yes. is said and done, Iran, according to Robert Baer, is going to end up with, uh, with Syria as its ally, controlling Lebanon and Iraq, and probably dominating or controlling the Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia. And uh, possibly it's making inroads in Egypt and possibly Egypt. So it is conceivable that a Persian superpower... A Persian Islamic superpower is going to emerge out of the Middle East, uh, and that it's uh, not going to be uh, easy to resist it. You know, I've always been, I've, I've always found the American strategy in the Middle East so strange, because in many ways, if they left the Israelis alone, the Israelis know their own backyard very well. And um, they would have taken care, I'm sure they would have taken care of um, Saddam's uh, weapons of mass destruction and things like that. I mean, look after all, they knocked out that nuclear reactor back in 81. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what got into George Bush. Um, I was a little bit puzzled because I wouldn't have thought of invading Iraq in 2003. <clears throat> I would have been more concentrating on helping the opposition to Hugo Chavez uh, get the uh, power back for uh, uh, for those who believe in freedom and democracy in Venezuela, because Venezuela is it was they were really looking to America to fight this communist leader, this sh- this shadow communist leader uh, Hugo Chavez, but instead he was focused on Iraq, <clears throat> and uh, it was it became a quagmire. In, in Venezuela, we probably didn't even need to send troops. All the president needed to do was make a speech of support for the uh, the movement against Chavez, and that just that speech would have caused Chavez to fall. <clears throat> but um, but now it it comes to the point of uh, you know we can't we we we've got to get out of the Middle East and we're going to leave it to Iran. 
You know, Jeff, to me it was as if the, the, the move into the Middle East was America abandoning Israel as its main, as the main Western power in the Middle East. And America wanting to take control of the Middle East. And I, and I, I had a theory. This, this is how it appeared to me. You can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. it appeared to me as if the logic at, in your country was something along the lines of we can't arm the Israelis and help the Israelis more because the Arabs hate the, hate the Israelis and we'll create a new war. But if we go in, we are stronger. We will also defuse part of this hatred for Israel. Something along those lines. And also probably America getting more hands-on control of that region. But I, I, I always wondered about this thing of fighting uh, these guerrilla wars in these distant countries. And back in 2003, when this actually happened, on a couple of occasions, I wrote about, I wrote about the concept of Iraq becoming like a Vietnam, Vietnam number two. And in some ways, I think it has become like that. Uh, there are important differences, but uh, I will, you know, uh, foreigners who don't know America, who don't really follow American politics, uh, thoroughly uh, are completely uh, mistaken uh, in their yeah. assumptions because the rest of the world thinks differently than Americans and I, that includes the American president um, <clears throat> Americans are naturally isolationistic they don't like to intervene in foreign uh, countries they're annoyed that they are our great power we don't really like it uh, we find it expensive we find it confusing uh, we find that people don't like us for what we see as, as doing sort of charity work for the world. And uh, we're, okay. we're the, the idea um, now there are Americans who believe who are who are stupid. Uh, basically, they live in their own country and they don't know anything about it. And they will accept foreign propaganda or foreign ideas because they've read them somewhere or hostile leftist ideas about the United States and its government and what it's doing. And the reality, the nature of American politics is anti-imperialistic. The idea okay. that we, the idea that many foreigners and you just explained, the idea that we got involved in, in the Middle East so that we could somehow control the, the oil is... I didn't say the oil. <laughs> or have a hands-on there to, uh, yes. to, to get any advantage for ourselves... Everybody in this country, especially the business elite who pay the politicians uh, the money that gets them elected, understood from the get-go that invading Iraq was a money loser. It was an economic yeah. negative, invading Iraq. I sat in on meetings of, of brokers and, and, and financial people, and they had combed over all the, the, the worldly advice from the financial community and the, and the business community, and it was... This is not. We're not going to make any money off of Iraq. It's a it's a black hole as far as money goes, as far as profiting American business. So, you want to know why we invaded it, Iraq? Okay, you tell me. Well, it it's President Bush's idea of how to conduct foreign policy, and it, it is worthwhile to actually read and listen to President Bush's speeches. 
And there is a line from President Bush's uh, second inaugural address in 2004, which was done within a year of the invasion of Iraq, in which he explained it very yeah. carefully. This is what uh, he said. He said he described 9-11 and how we learned we are vulnerable. We, you know, He said, we have seen our vulnerability and we have seen its deepest source. For as long yeah. as whole regions of the world simmer in resentment and tyranny, prone to ideologies that feed hatred and excuse murder, violence will gather and multiply in destructive power and cross the most defended borders and raise a mortal threat. And now here is what he says in the following paragraph. He says, We are led by events and common sense to one conclusion. The survival of liberty in our own land increasingly depends on the success of liberty in other lands. The best hope for peace in our world is the expansion of freedom in all the world. America's vital interests and our deepest beliefs are now one. From the day of our founding, we have proclaimed that every man and woman on this earth has rights and dignity and matchless value, because they bear the image of the Maker of heaven and earth. Across the generations, we have proclaimed the imperative of self-government, because no one is fit to be master, and no one deserves to be a slave. Advancing these ideals is the mission that created our nation. It is the honorable achievement of our fathers. Now it is the urgent requirement of our nation's security and the calling of our time. Now, now I will tell you that what President Bush said there, which is the way he felt, by the way, from the beginning. He felt like this even before 9-11, but it came awakened in him by 9-11. This is logical. His thought process here is logical, but it's strategically wrong. And you could probably tell me why. Okay, well, I mean, what you're describing there is his mission to go and democratize the Middle East and to oh, go oh, on this mission. Not just the Middle East, not just the Middle East, everybody. Well, the world. Yes. But if you look at that, that's what, that's part of what the West has been trying to do in South Africa as well and in Africa. Yes. By, yes. So you have these international, I mean, you have these sort of internationalist types in your government to look at the world as a whole. And you want to pass your values on to us. But I think that they make a lot of assumptions and they assume that people are a lot, you know, I don't think they take into account cultural and religious differences and other deep-seated human issues mm -hmm. when they look at, look at the world like that. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, it's all wrong. The United States was not created because the Founding Fathers were on a mission. You know, uh, the, the United States was created because the rights of Englishmen in the United States, they felt, were not being upheld, that their rights were being violated by the king. And that's a very different thing than being on a mission to create something new. Uh, they didn't realize they were creating something new. I think they were trying to, uh, they were being very conservative. They were trying to conserve the rights that they believed they already had and that the king was refusing to acknowledge. And um, I think what you just said, I think, you see, the thing is, is it, it, you can see that it makes perfect sense. If the whole world were like America, there would be no war, because there's no war in America. Yes. But the problem yes. is, uh, how on earth are you going to make the whole world like America? There's no way to do it. And to attempt to do it is a strategic error, because every time you attempt to do something that's beyond your means, beyond your power to affect it, 
you are running your head against a brick wall, you are wasting your resources, your strategic assets, and you are demoralizing your people and making yourself look ridiculous. And, yes. and you are also, by the way, empowering your enemies. Because whenever you adopt a strategy that basically wounds yourself, damages yourself in the process of executing it, um, the result is your enemies take advantage of you. They take advantage of your position. They take advantage of what you have done that is a mistake. And uh, just as in Africa, and I think Africa, what you guys have experienced down there with the uh, uh, British and the Americans kind of trying to impose their ideas, their democratic ideas and ideas of liberty on uh, countries that are not European, you know, uh, North uh, North European or American states, is, is a completely, well, to put it bluntly, asinine. Yes. It doesn't work because the people here are different. And looking at these people here, Jeff, you know, to first world people, perhaps concepts such as democracy and so forth sound like a really good idea. And it is like, it is a good idea when you get to a certain point in your existence and in your evolution. But here in Africa, you have other problems and other issues, and people are often just trying to survive. So some of these ideals and some of these concepts don't even really fit in. And I think a thing that Americans don't understand because they've, be, they've lost it is when everybody went to America, they eventually became Americans, and they lost their culture and they lost their language. So even even these so-called African-Americans, and I hate to use that term, I, these days I say that I'm going to, that I call them black Americans, uh, because they, because they are no more African than anybody else. They, they don't even know anything about Africa. But even your black Americans, at the end of the day, speak English and know no other culture other than the one that they're in, and it's exactly the same culture as the one that you have. But they forget that in Africa and in the rest of the world, tribalism, which is a type of nationalism, exists. People have got huge cultural uh, cultural issues. Even black people in Africa, they can hardly get along with with each other. So, and then there are religious in the Middle East. You also have Islam. So you have all sorts of other concepts that that come and bedevil these things. And um, yeah, it's I impossible. think Americans don't really understand that. No. Uh, well, President Bush didn't. He thought that... Um, well, President Bush said, for example, that Islam is a religion of peace. That uh, Christians, and, and Christians and Muslims <laughs> worship the same God. Uh, I'm no. sorry, that's not true. Uh, yes. the, the Muslims worship Allah. And uh, that is not the same God that the Christians worship, not the same God at well, all. And and what well, I would not... what I would point out further, I'm sorry, just um, when you say yes. Islam is a religion of peace, here's what Islam is really like: the local mullah, who has the best-looking teenage girls from the from the community uh, in his harem, uh, basically has the illiterate tribal. Uh, uh, people in his vicinity under his thumb. And he basically tells them that the Quran says they uh, must accept whatever he says. 
and that that there is no democracy except the Quran. There's no constitution. There's no liberty. It's what the Quran says. And of course, he yes. is the Quran because he's the voice of the Quran. And so this yes. clerical kind of tribal setup in these places mean that uh, democracy amounts to these ignorant uh, medieval figures uh, dictating the vote, dictating policy, dictating, I mean, like what you have in Iran, where you have a clerical yes. regime. You have a, a president, he's not a cleric, President Ahmadinejad, but he basically is under the thumb of clerics. And yes. uh, he is at their beck and call. Uh, the most powerful man is the Ayatollah Khomeini, who is, uh, who is of course, not, not the original Ayatollah Khomeini, but he is one of the clerics who is the, the main leader there, the main religious leader, and, and the father of the country. And yes. so what he says is more important than what the president of the country says. And yes. uh, we don't quite understand that uh, that is not democracy as we understand it. And now we went into Iraq and said, well, we did Germany and Japan as democracy, so we can do Iraq as a democracy. But hold on. Is Japan a That's democracy? Key. I mean, let me, let me, let me just get, get serious here for a second. We, uh, made the Japanese adopt a constitution that had a democratic form. But for the last half century, the, there's been one political party in power in Japan. The Liberal Party. So how is it that the Democrat, that, that the, that the Liberal Democrats in Japan, who are really fascists, by the way, and the whole country has uh -huh. a kind of fascist political ethic. How can you call it a democracy? It would be like, okay, <laughs> the Nazi party's in control, but they're voting now. Well, they always vote the same way. You know, I mean, they always produce the same outcome. I mean, they had to let the Japanese imperial leaders out of jail, the ones they didn't hang. And they had to let them take their country back. And they said, you're going to have a democracy. And they said, fine, we'll vote. But, you know... Um, Democracy is just another way of organizing oligarchy. You know that. You see that in South Africa with yes. the ANC. Yes. There's always yes. a, a, a oligarchy. The question is which oligarchy. And the culture yes. of a people determines the type of oligarchy it is, whether there's voting or not. I, you know, Jeff, I think a lot is a lot is made of democracy, um, but democracy. You know, you can. The way we see it, we have a very cynical view of democracy. You know, a friend of mine once said that uh, when he looked at when he looked at the way the ANC was running the country here, I mean, effectively we're a one-party state. And he said, "Well, you know, we whites were really stupid because when we thought they were asking for democracy for black people, we actually thought about real democracy." We never thought that maybe what you should do is say that we'll have democracy, but in reality we we'll just cook the election every time. <laughs> mm -hmm. We could otherwise we could have done that too. But yeah, you know, I think I think a lot is made of of these concepts, and there are people who believe that spreading these concepts around the world will make the world a better place. But I really disagree. I think that the world is much more complicated than that. And, you know, people across this earth haven't been fighting for thousands of years for nothing. And you're not just going to come along and with the wave of a magic wand stop all of this. Well, consider these words of President Bush in his second inaugural. And this is why <laughs> President Bush is a failed leader. And this is what he said in his second inaugural. He said, the great objective 
of ending tyranny is the concentrated work of generations. The difficulty of the task is no excuse for avoiding it. America's influence is not unlimited, but fortunately for the oppressed, America's influence is considerable, and we will use it confidently in freedom's cause. Now, this is the exact opposite of what John Adams, the 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 yeah. uh, the guy that really originated, and John Quincy Adams, his son, uh, America's foreign policy concepts uh, at the beginning, at the founding of America, in the first half century of American politics. Um, what he said is, he said, look, America believes in liberty, but we can't go around the world looking for monsters and tyrants to destroy, because we... We don't have the means to do that. We don't have, that is not what a country does. That's not a, that's what, if you want military despotism in the United States, that's what you do. Because you need to maintain a large military establishment. You have to militarize your country. You know, it's, it's yeah. all these things. You, you're, you're gonna make America into a fascist state. A fascist state that's spreading freedom is a contradiction in terms. Because if you don't make America a fascist state and, and, and ideologically motivated to this great conquest in the name of liberty, if you don't do it, the American people will go into another country saying, okay, we're going to liberate it, and then they'll find out the people don't really like us and they don't value freedom, and we're going to go, yuck, let's get out of there. Which is what we've done okay. already. We did in Vietnam, and we did, we've did we done now in, well, we did in Somalia, when President Clinton thought he was going to do that in Somalia, and we've done it now again in Iraq, and we're going to do it in Afghanistan. Basically, so yes. it's it it it's not workable. And what Adams said is, he said, "Look, we should have a policy where we're we're on good terms with everyone because we're a trading nation. We want to we want to have exchange with everyone. And if our ideas, through the process of trading with them, influences them to adopt some of our ideas, that's the best we can do. But we can't go around, you know, searching for converting monsters, everyone." Yeah. And, and, and President yeah. Bush's speech, uh, when I heard President Bush's second inaugural, I was in shock because I was a little bit unsure about the invasion of Iraq, thinking, well, if they know what they're doing, maybe, you know, it's never bad to overthrow a totalitarian murderer. But I thought they better know what they're doing. And if I were them, I wouldn't do it because I don't understand why this would be necessary. Um, but I was supportive of the president. Um, but uh, but it turns out, when I read those words, I realized the president was off his rocker. He did not know what he was doing. He had adopted a set of ideas that were not grounded in reality. Uh, he had adopted an idea that America can be on a mission to overturn all the problems in the world that make the rest of the world mostly a world of despots, a world of civil wars and ethnic conflicts. We can't we can't Jeff? solve that. <clears throat> Jeff, let me explain the way I saw things after 9-11 because I think you misunderstand me a little bit. I didn't say that America – I've never said that America went to the Middle East for oil. But I, what I'm trying to – what I saw was something somewhat different. In the Middle East, you have all these terrorist groups that are anti-Western and anti-Israel, and they are funded in one way or another by the Russians. And to me, when I look at the Middle East, I see the same sort of invisible hand of the Russians in the Middle East as we had here in Africa. And if you, and I just, from my sort of viewpoint, these terrorists that were attacking America with 9-11, 
you know, were third parties. You know, they are offshoots of the people who invented international terrorism, as, as we've said before, the Russians. And these people are causing a lot of trouble and trying to destabilize the Middle East, and they're trying to take over Israel. And it was in that sort of sense that I felt that if America goes into the Middle East, it's not just because you're fighting a bunch of Arab terrorists. It's because you're fighting the Russians who are behind the Arab terrorists. In the same way that the Russians are behind the Iranian nuclear project, and they are, you know, look at the Russians. They are the ones trying to spread nuclear power. They're trying to get nuclear, you know, the Libyans are trying to get nuclear bombs. The Egyptians are trying. Everybody's trying to get nuclear bombs. I see the, the Russian influence as being a sort of people sneaking around trying to create problems and trying to destabilize the Middle East and trying to create lots of enemies for the West. Mm -hmm. And the West responded by going after these people. And, and in many ways, what, what America did after 9-11 is a lot like what Israel is doing in Gaza right now. Because essentially you have these tiny little groups that are attacking you and irritating you continuously. Look at the, the, the terrorists in Gaza who for how long? Ever since the, the Israelis handed over Gaza, which is how long? Two years or whatever. Ever since the day they handed over Gaza, there have been rockets fired daily into Israel from Gaza. Now, eventually, the Israelis can't take it anymore, and now they're going in and they're attacking them. But in essence, these terrorists are are stoking fires and are trying to prod you into some kind of action. Now, when, when, they, when they went off to the World Trade Center, they really stoked the fire and prodded America, and it made America realize how vulnerable it was. Now, I can see some of the logic because afterwards, Jeff, I don't know if you, how aware you are of how active the CIA was after 9-11 because even here in South Africa, we had stories about CIA agents moving here in Johannesburg among the Muslims in South Africa and we had these stories of, of these Muslim people Suddenly on the news we'd have a story about a Muslim man who suddenly disappeared. His family doesn't know where he is. His lawyer is looking for him. The last they the last they heard was he was put on a plane at an at a military air base and he just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And the they, South they African call government that said, they call that renditions, by the way. So in many ways it was to me as if America went almost like on the offensive in order to protect itself because it realized how vulnerable it was. Mm -hmm. And so I think that context in which George Bush and I, I think that your military intelligence people conceived of the sort of the best form of defense is attack. And so then they conceived of these ideas of going after these terrorists and part of it involved going after their bases in the Middle East. But I think that they bit off more than they could chew because this was how I wondered. This is why I wrote about it being a second Vietnam. Because in order, to, when you're fighting a terrorist war, Jeff, 
the odds are stacked against you if you fight in the Western way. In the Western way, you do not have to suffer a military defeat in order to actually lose. In order, the Western world is so used to being in complete control that when a Western country fights some terrorists, all it needs is a certain level of unrest and a certain level of economic and social um, sort of unrest and 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 um, chaos, and then a Western country already wants to give up the fight, and that is how I saw this whole. Um, uh, Middle East thing is because in order to get so-called democracy, in order to turn Iraq into a Western nation, they have to go in, they have to install this democracy, they have to get democracy functioning, they have to get all these political parties and they have to teach these people how to vote. And then when all of this is done, then they have to leave them alone. But the problem is this whole setup is so fragile that a terrorist can just come along and start mucking it all up. Mm. And he can start assisting people and that sort of thing. And to me, the real issue was that if America goes into the Middle East, you have got long supply lines and you have to stay there for a very long time. And even if they just kill a couple of American soldiers every month, it's a huge cost and that's really the, the big downside of this kind of strategy. And and it bleeds your country. That's yeah. That's the yeah. way that I it, it and, does. and that's and, why uh, and that's why I thought it was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Or, or bad idea, but a dangerous idea if you do it in a certain way. You know, I often looked at it and said that there are other ways of solving the problem. For example the one way is for America not to go to the Middle East at all. For America just to give Israel money and weapons and leave the Israelis to do what they want to do. The Israelis are there. They have an intelligence service that's probably better than the CIA. And the Israelis will, if, and if the Israelis feel there's a real threat, they will take it out. They will not allow somebody else to have nuclear weapons and that sort of stuff. Or the other alternative was go in and crush these people but crush them like you crushed Germany in World War II. Um, oh, it, would have to I be, just it would have to be much worse. We'd have to literally, to quote-unquote build democracy in the Middle East, we'd have to kill every single religious Arab uh, and, and leave all the only the ones that are willing to convert to Christianity. That would be the only way to do it. Like they did in Spain, by the way. The only way they defeated Islam in Spain was that King Ferdinand said, you're going to convert or you're going to leave or you're going to die. When was this? In, oh, in, in the in the fifteenth uh, late fifteenth century. And Around they got the, it right. And they got it right <laughs> because they because the thing is is that as long as you leave them in your territory, you are leaving um, a war still unresolved. You're leading because the only way to get people have to you cannot win a war unless the other side is entirely dead or they admit that you won. That's only two options. Yes. If if I do not admit that you won and I'm still alive, you haven't won anything. You're still at war with me. You, you know, Jeff, just just the other day on my website, I, re, I remarked that now that I know more about Islam and I've had a chance to 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 see some of the things that are in the Quran and all that, you know, I think the only I think that Islam should be wiped out completely because Islam 
is the only religion on earth that can't coexist with anybody else. Because Islam and, and all this bunk about it being a religion of peace, it's, it's a big load of nonsense. Because in, in, in the Quran, it tells you that you must go and find Jews and you must kill them. It tells you you must ambush them. You must convert people, um, at the point of a sword, you know. And it even says there something along the lines of, you know, in the case of Christians, if they pay you a ransom, then you'll let them live. That sort of thing. So to me, the problem with Islam is that you can't have peace with Islam because the very basis of the religion is to destroy you. Yeah, well, I, I, I would take a totally different position uh, from saying that. Uh, what I would say is that uh, there's nothing wrong with having people in the world who want you dead. And in fact, um, just about every nation or people in the world at one time or another has had such a problem. Uh, in fact, the, the, since Islam has existed for 1400 years, the West has had this problem for 1400 years. And uh, it hasn't destroyed the West, and I would argue it almost did, but in some ways it made the West stronger to have an enemy like that okay. there. Um, the real problem is Western liberalism. That's the real problem, and our delusions about things. Uh, we can, um, we have an enemy that wants to kill us. Uh, that is going to make you stronger, sharper, uh, better. And I do not uh, think that it's possible that there's a billion Muslims on the planet. It's neither possible nor humane to to launch into a yeah. genocidal war to eliminate them. Uh, the way Hitler went out to eliminate the Jews. Because if you do that, you are feeding right into a process that leads to a weapon of mass destruction war. And Arab countries already, some of them have had or have currently access, not to nuclear weapons, but to other weapons of mass destruction, biological and chemical. And if they perceived that anyone was moving against them to exterminate them as a people, the Islamic nation, which is all the Arab nations that uh, subscribe to Islam, which is all of them now that Lebanon is no longer Christian, um, is is in fact a uh, uh, in, an incitement to genocidal warfare on both sides. So I think um, I I can't go along with you on that. Uh, but I, I certainly understand that you know when you have a, a life and death enemy, you 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 almost ha you almost start to think of a them or us kind of thing. Well, I'm just saying that in the context of if you want if you want peace in the Middle East, <laughs> if you want peace in the Middle <laughs> East, right? Yeah, well, right. And if you were if you want peace in the world, kill everyone. <laughs> you know, let's let's do away with the whole human race. Let's all wake up and drink the Kool Aid in the morning, and there'll be peace on Earth the day after. Um, okay, you're making. Much. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling. <laughs> I won't advocate genocide anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it is it is Islam is a problem religion uh, for the Hindus, uh, for the secular people in Russia. For Israel, uh, for the Christians in the West, uh, and the secular people in the West, and for people in Africa, <coughs> Christians in Africa are suffering. Yes, mainly the ones in Nigeria, the East and West Africa. Those are the areas we have quite a bit of Muslims. 
You don't have that many here. There, there are some Muslims in South Africa, but they're not a major portion of the population. And, uh, and you know, I, I will add something else. The Arab peoples are clannish, they're tribal. Um, the Arabs, because of their culture, have never been able to organize very effectively for war. Um, and I was talking to a military man, a colonel who was... Uh, uh, very much responsible in, in American strategy in the Middle East, very much involved in, in military strategies there. And he, he, he shocked me last week. He said, uh, yeah. he, he told me that, uh, that the United States Army would go through the, uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, like a hot knife through butter. He said, they're, they're, they're weak. He said, the only reason that the Israelis appear to be strong is because they've been fighting Arabs. Just say that again. Are you saying that the Israelis are no good if they were to face up to the Americans? The Americans would, he said, the American army would just destroy the Israeli defense forces in nothing flat. You lie. No. And this guy is, by the way, this guy is probably the best military brain in the United States Army, or or was before his retirement. And this guy knows knows warfare. Could make sense because I've often wondered about these, about how good these Arabs are as fighters. Interestingly enough, I actually know an Afrikaner who married an Indian woman who was a Muslim and he took on a Muslim name. He's the only Afrikaner I know who's actually a practicing Muslim. Mm-hmm. And he told, and he told me after 9-11, he said to me, he's so completely amazed that these Arabs pulled it off because he's among these Muslims all the time and he doesn't think that this is their kind of thing. He, he thought, like you say, that they were disorganized and they're just not good at this kind of thing. No, they're but not. Obviously it, it's, in the ca- it's cultural, yeah. But obviously in the case of the Israelis, it's a case of knowing your enemy, I suppose. Um, that, that's what makes them active. And now, it's like... Now, what this fellow pointed out to me, too, which was fascinating to me, he said, Israel is not really even a Middle Eastern power except for its nuclear weapons. Uh, it, it, not, a, not a great regional power um, because it's too weak. Uh, he pointed out that the great regional powers in the Middle East are Turkey and Iran. And, uh, okay. and he said the Turks, uh, they have a talent for war. They're well organized. They've been modernized. The Iranians are in the process of modernizing. They're a completely different kettle of fish. He, he, uh, he intimated to me that the Turkish army would destroy Israel's army in nothing flat, too. And that even if the United States army went against the Turks, we'd win, but we would be so brutalized. We'd suffer such high casualties. We'd wish we hadn't. So he said that the, the Turks are not to be underestimated. They really have uh, quite a nation, and they have a large population under 30. So they have a very good manpower base for waging modern war. Um, and they're increasingly educated and sophisticated. Um, uh, it was interesting to me to, to hear that. He pointed out that Turkey had ru- governed that part of the world for, for like 500 years, uh, the Middle East. And uh, before that, of course, we know the Persians had dominated the Middle East for, uh, for a thousand years. So it's, yes. um, it is really, uh, well, it is really interesting to say the least, um, that we think of things, you know, sort of like there are these deep truths in history, these permanent things that, that keep cropping up in history. And one of them is Persia. And another one is the Turks. But not the little tiny state of Israel that only has a very short life and doesn't look like it has very much promise in the future, to be honest. Um, Do you think that... What did he say about Israel? 
Well, he didn't think, he, think he, he thought that they were in a really difficult position. Uh, but that the one redeeming thing was that they, the enemy, the main enemy they were facing was Arabs. But here's the thing. Hezbollah, to the north of them, is organized by Iranians. And the Iranians yes. know how to organize. They're not Arabs. And even though the Arab, they're Arab converts in Lebanon, uh, they're really being commanded and directed by Persians. And so as a consequence, uh, well, Persia is, uh, Iran is part Persian and part Turkic. So they're a Persian Turkic nation. But the, the, um, the, uh, the war recently, the first time that Israeli forces actually retreated under fire was this war uh, a couple summers ago up in Lebanon. One in two six. I'm sorry, say that again? The war in 2006. Yes. yes. When they invaded Lebanon and they didn't do... <clears throat> no, they had a terrible time of it. They lost a lot of tanks. They lost men. And they looked around and said, what, what happened? What, what did we do wrong? And, and I don't think the Israelis did that much different than they were used to. But what they were facing was a different enemy. They were facing an enemy who was, who was ultimately being organized by non-Arabs. Uh, an, Israeli, an Israeli friend of mine actually gave me a different take on it. He wanted to tell me at the time that there was a lot of American interference in that, in that war and that... Um, and that the American government was sort of telling them, attack, don't attack, attack, don't attack. And they were getting all these mixed signals and they were doing things. He was basically saying that they were fighting differently to the way they normally fight. And that that was what undermined the way that they were. Over and, ab over and above the fact that the enemy was better prepared. But So I don't know if it's all excuses, but... I do, but they did seem to be a lot more disorganized in the way they were doing things there. Yeah, yeah. It it um, certainly, whenever you are constricted by the politicians in the United States government in Washington, you are not going to be able to fight a war. You are going to be uh, politically interfered with. Jeff, I will tell you something. You know, looking at the looking at the wars that we had in Africa. If I look at Rhodesia, for example, for years and years, because of sanctions and and everybody being against Rhodesia at the time, um, the Rhodesian government didn't want to engage in cross-border raids and attacking terrorist bases outside the country and that sort of thing. And the war got worse and worse as these terrorists had, or, or libera, or freedom fighters, or whatever you want to call them, as they were organizing better and, and, and developing better strategies and becoming just better at fighting, and more and more of them were coming in. And then at a point in time when things were truly desperate and, and, the, and, and fighting these little piecemeal skirmishes was, was really driving people up the wall and, and using up our resources, in those desperate times, there were some military planners that then started planning these cross-border raids. And they did these cross-border raids, even, even though it caused tremendous political mayhem for the government. And those, the military success of those cross-border raids was absolutely astounding. And the same actually happened in South Africa. And in both the case of South Africa and Rhodesia, 
at the end of the day, the politicians controlled the, the war. And by having these politicians constantly interfering in the military aspects of the war, they actually tremendously reduced the army's ability to fight. And so I could imagine that, that in Israel's situation, that they have um, some of that sort of problem. And also, the Israelis strike me these days as being a lot more liberal, and they want to be accepted by the world. And so they don't do the same kinds of bold things that they used to do. And, I mean, you remember all the things that the Israelis used to do. They used to, they never had a problem um, attacking or hunting down terrorists or going and blowing something up. Mm. But I wonder if, you know, in many ways, Israel these days seems to me to be very similar to South Africa in its final days. Mm. It's as if the Israelis have lost the will to survive. They don't really believe in themselves anymore. They are tired of 50 years of warfare, and they want to give up. And now the question is, how do you surrender in a decent way? Well, I, what I would say is that the generation in Israel that lived through the Holocaust is passing. And as that generation yes. passes, the younger generation does not know directly what a uh, battle what for survival is. They do not know how bad things can get. Um, at, but I think the Israelis know, uh, the informed Israelis know, that uh, the Arabs are believers in the protocols of the elders of Zion. They believe that Hitler yes. was right. They believe that if, if they believe there was a Holocaust, they think it was probably a good thing. Uh, otherwise, they deny that it happened because they don't because uh, they like Hitler. Um, if you go, even in in Istanbul, I was interviewing Claire Berlinski. Uh, I've I've had a number of interviews with her, and I I like her books. Uh, she lives in Istanbul, and and she was telling me if you go to the to the market in Istanbul, you will find uh, stacks of the protocols of the elders of Zion for sale. And, and aren't they, they also pump? In the Middle East. And Mein Kampf. Yeah, Mein Kampf. And uh, there was this, uh, I think it was Kenneth Timmerman, uh, went around in the Middle East. He wanted to meet the different clerics, Muslim clerics. Uh, and I may be thinking of the wrong writer, but I think it was him. And uh, they, one of them pulled out the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and showed it to him. And he said, this is, you want to know the real truth about Israel? you got to read this. And, of course, the Protocols is a, is a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fake document reporting that the Jews are trying to take over the world through secret societies and through schemes and plots. And it's what Hitler believed. It's the basis for Nazism. Uh, it's a basis yeah. for the Holocaust. It's a basic for, basis for exterminating Jews. It's a fundamental cornerstone of, of, of anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish ideology. And it is, um, it is uh, intellectually, it's, it's, it's for intellectual slobs, really. And it's shocking okay. after all these these decades since since 1920 when it was proved to be a fraud that anybody would pull it out of their pocket and say hey look what I have I have the truth here here's it is the are the protocols it's just 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 actually, frightening this is actually frightening. Jeff you could you could say the same thing for the writings of Karl Marx <laughs> oh uh, there are still Africa believe that's true <laughs> oh, no doubt our universities are full of them and they're paid and they're, they're, they have, uh, uh, tenure. Uh, they make very good money 
and they are given children to indoctrinate. It, it is it is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think the problems. This is indicative of the deeper problems of the West. And we were talking about how can a president uh, pursue a strategy of promoting freedom in the Middle East when we've lost our freedom on our campuses. When you can't say what you want, what you can't. There's no freedom of speech on an American campus because if you say something that's pro-American, you're going to get a lower grade. You're going to be, get penalized. Your career is going to be damaged. You see? And well, you everybody, everybody's very quick to uh, say, hey, I don't want my career damaged. Uh, I'm going to go along with them. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, I was looking even just at websites. Um, you know, because of my website and the things I write about Africa and so forth, I noticed that there were websites springing up in Australia and even uh, Sweden where people were writing sort of similar things about their bad experiences with black Africans or whatever, and where people were not politically correct. And and it appears to me that if you're a white person living in what used to be a Western country, you're not allowed to just say what's on your mind anymore. You have to be politically correct or else people are going to shut you up. And in the case of the one Australian website, I heard that they were shut down by the government. Interesting. <clears throat> Just well, you, for uh, well, you know, it's now that we're racially mixed. Now that we want all the people of the world, no matter what their religion or racial background, to live in our country, to where there's no American culture anymore. There's no American tradition. There's no uh, we're a Christian country. That's all gone. And by the way, 50 years ago, yes. everyone w that wouldn't have been controversial to say Americans a Christian country. It wouldn't have been. It wouldn't have been controversial to say that we have these certain specific culture and traditions and that we're European. But now, if you say that, you're not going to get a job. You're being hateful towards minorities and other people. And so what we have is multiculturalism. But I will tell you, quite frankly, multiculturalism is anti-Americanism. That's what it is. It isn't simply true that multiculturalism in this country is, oh, we're all going to, you know, enjoy everybody and what everybody has to say, and we're all going to work together as Americans. No. It basically says America's been wrong about everything. It persecuted the blacks by taking them here in chains. It took the land yes. away from the Indians. It, it stole Texas and, and the Southwest from the Mexicans. It, uh, it, it brutalized the Filipinos uh, and, and probably uh, wasn't fair to Japan either. Yes. And now we oppress the entire third world because we're the American imperialists. And see, this this whole tell. thing is is yeah. There's there's truth in that because you know what? All of the human uh, families of man came out of the Middle Ages where we we're all hacking at each other with broadswords, okay, and <laughs> looting each other's towns. We all came from that. But that's not really how, what America America's development and evolution and political history mean or signify or what our traditions are. Our traditions aren't drinking glog out of someone's skull and burning their town. That's not America, <laughs> okay? America's the back. <laughs> The evolution away from that. And this representation, this, this multiculturalism, and excuse me for being on a rant here, is, is destroying it. us. It's, it's our suicide here. Jeff, I want to tell you an, about an argument I often have with a, with a liberal friend of mine. <clears throat> we, he's the only liberal guy I actually sit and talk to. And we used to argue endlessly. We sort of, we, we now agree on quite a few things. But the one thing he used to, 
he used to um, talk about with with tremendous, uh, almost pride, was he used to say to me, you know, um, if you look at ancient China, whenever ancient China was conquered by somebody, which basically, as I understand it, was the, the Mongols each time, and, and he would say, you know, whenever China was conquered, they would always swallow their conquerors. So these people would conquer them and then live in their society and then eventually become just like the Chinese. And, and he would, and he would say, you know, this was, this was his great, um, you know, he was very proud of this. This was his, the sort of basis of his argument of liberalism is, you know, let people attack us, let everybody come because they're going to become like us. And then one day I turned around and I said to him, when I was really fed up with this, and I said to him, you know what? I just want to point out something else to you. That in the case of the Chinese, you had an absolutely enormous nation, the largest nation on earth, and these tiny little tribes would come and would conquer that entire nation. And, you know, that in itself is not something to actually be proud of, you know, mm -hmm. to think that this massive nation can't even defend itself from a handful of, you know, <laughs> wild horsemen, you know. Well, but there's another, so, there's another point. Those wild horsemen might have eaten the whole population of China in a desperate moment if they'd had appetite for it. But they were, since they didn't have the numbers or the means or the appetite, they wouldn't have because those people probably, when they were hungry in the frozen north of Siberia, probably did eat people. But you know, Jeff, the point, the point to me is that liberalism is, is a way of allowing the weak to conquer the strong. Because if you look at, if you look at these terrorists in the Middle East, for example, these terrorists are not really a threat to the world in any way, shape, or form. No. But if you start accommodating these people and you start letting them get to you, then eventually they will conquer you. If you keep leaving, letting them into your country, and there are only a handful of them, but now already they force you to adopt some of uh, their rules and they're starting to change your society. And... It's already happening to you, as you're describing, in your own country. You're getting these minorities coming into your country, and they're already changing you. They're already forcing you to speak Spanish, and they're forcing you to, to admit that you're no longer Christian just because maybe 5% of the population is Muslim or something like that. And to me, this is just a way of if you leave these people alone, these people will conquer you. Yeah, if is. you carry on, if if you don't respond to them in a stronger way, well, it is it is a problem. Uh, we had recently in the Wall Street Journal this piece by Professor Panarin, this uh, former KGB officer who teaches at the diplomatic school in Moscow, uh, and he was saying that the KGB had this uh, had figured out years ago that the America was headed for a civil war because it was admitting too many aliens uh, from different countries into the country, and they were not assimilating. Instead, they were creating different ethnic and cultural centers in the country, which would become the nucleus of, of uh, different countries, uh, not really part of America, that would then uh, uh, you know, revolt or not want to go along with the United States as a, as a, as a political society. And so he said this economic breakup, he was anticipating that the U.S. economy sometime in 2009 would collapse and that in, in 2010, 
it would lead to the ethnic uh, conflict between the different ethnic groups that have their own identities here and that this would result in, in uh, widespread violence. That these people would start blowing off bombs against each other, they would start uh, doing assassinations and killings. Um, and uh, I, to be honest with you, having seen the L.A. riots, being from Southern California, yeah. having lived there for 31 years, I will tell you that, uh, yes, uh, there's a tremendous pent-up possibility of, of ethnic violence in the United States. There's no doubt about it. Wow, that is quite shocking. But you know, Jeff, I, I think that um, in history... Hasn't it always been a case that migration leads to, number one, warfare, and number two, the rise and fall of new countries? So aren't those guys completely correct, at least in principle, in their assumptions? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and that's what I, I'm trying to say is that, that uh, the KGB is not stupid. and Their studies and their academics are quite excellent. And uh, they've anticipated many developments. It was a it was a, a guy that was uh, probably uh, trained by the same KGB officer who, uh, in an anonymous interview with Pravda in in July twenty and yeah July twenty ninth of this year, predicted the economic crisis in the United States, which began occurring in September. And you can go right to Pravda and you can read it. He said America is about to go into a crisis of its existence. And Americans are going to have to learn yeah. to live within their means. That's what he said. That's right out of Pravda. And and when you go to people who are better at anticipating the future and seeing around corners, the Russians are that people. They're much better at seeing the future than Americans. Americans are always being caught blindsided, and their policies are based on uh, completely stupid ideological notions of, of liberalism and capitalism that don't really even properly understand what democracy is. You see, I think this is where we now have exactly the same conflict as I had with my liberal friend. Because my liberal friend believes that if you let people into your society, then you, they will become like you. Whereas those Russians are actually anticipating a different scenario. And what I said to my liberal friend was I said to him that I can accept part of his argument as long as you look at it almost like chemistry. In other words, if you have a large population and you have a very small number of immigrants, then I will buy the argument that those small number of immigrants will have to be assimi assimilated into the larger population. Mm -hmm. But if you allow a large number of people to come into your country, then those people will no longer ass be assimilated into your culture there will be enough of them around that they will now start f bringing their bad habits with them. Mm -hmm. Because that's the other thing that you see. Take, for example, Europe. There are millions of black Africans fleeing Africa after colonialism. You'd think they'd want to stay, but now life is really tough. So now what do they do? They all run away to Europe. And when these large numbers of Africans go to Europe, what do they do? They take all their bad habits with them. They take all their crime and their prostitution and all that kind of stuff with them, and they cause problems over there. And I, and, and in, from my sort of viewpoint, if you let large numbers of these third world people into your country, remember these people couldn't make a success in their own country, now they run into a first world country, and I'm telling you, when they get to that first world country, they're going to want 
all those same cultural things that that caused them to fail in their original country, they're going to be bringing them all those things with them into your country. Mm-hmm. They're going to bring their problems with them. Yeah, and of course uh, there is this notion, this very humane notion in the West that we owe it to these people that somehow they're in the condition they are because of us. Uh, as if, uh, as, as if right. my ancient Scandinavian forebears were looting towns and drinking log out of skulls, uh, because somebody disadvantaged them. It wasn't true. It was you know, just Jeff, the way, the way it was. Jeff, that is one of the messages I have on my website that, and, and in my book that is so important. You know, I keep trying to tell people, the first thing that, that white people in the Western world need to get the hell away from is this whole white guilt syndrome. Those people are not in the, are not in a state of poverty because of you and me. Those people, if we'd left them alone, they would have been even poorer than they are today. And by the way, most and, of them would know, have died of disease. Exactly. And never exactly. even been born. I mean, here, Exactly, Jeff. Here in Africa, you know, um, if you look at the population statistics of black Africa at the time of colonialism, you'd be shocked. There, there was, a, you know, Africa had less than a tenth of the population that it has now. It may even have had, it may even have had a twentieth of the population that it has now because in those days they were dying out. And, and like you say, they weren't living long. They, 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 in fact, they had to breed almost like rabbits in order just to try and maintain their population. If you look at the, at the way African culture is structured, it is all about having as many children as you possibly can. It is about polygamy and having children and that's the basis of your, the basis of your wealth was how many cattle you had and how many children you had. And, you know, that was the only way those societies could survive even. Hmm. I mean, their agriculture was non-existent. In most of Africa, 95% of Africa, if not 99% of Africa, the people were so backward that they couldn't build cities because their agriculture and their methods of surviving was, was so, were so backward that they couldn't remain in the same spot. They had to follow the animals or they had to move when the soil was no longer any good, that sort of thing. So, you know, as far as I can see, colonialism brought lots of benefits. And those people, you know what, those people might have been poor under colonialism and poor under apartheid, but you know what, they were far better off. They were about a hundred times better off than they would have been if they hadn't been, if they hadn't been colonialism and if they hadn't been apartheid. Oh, wow. That's, um, that's something that all the politically correct in here would stuff a sock in your mouth for. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they'd like to uh, put a bullet in my head too. <laughs> oh gosh, are you sure you want this uh, little podcast to air, Jan? <laughs> You're gonna have a bunch of different no. people coming after you now. Uh, I've already got so many enemies. What's a couple of dozen more? <laughs> or a couple, or a billion more in, term, in case of the Arabs. Uh, no, you know what? Muslims want so many, uh, yeah, yeah. I've been talking about genocide against the Arabs. In, in this last hour, I've just made myself 
more than a billion enemies. <laughs> <laughs> you got to you, you, you got to go back to read more Napoleon there and figure out how to undo that. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm going to be <laughs> gonna, I've just created a problem for yeah, myself. Maybe you need to go to go to St. Helena Island now before it's too late. <laughs> I'll surrender after the show. I'll hand myself over. <laughs> That's right. You better hand yourself over. All right, Jan. Well, thanks.